Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes and Boone LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Good afternoon and welcome to this event featuring Susan Shirk. It's a little bit calmer than it was a few nights ago when we were over at the theater watching Recount, but I have a feeling that the discussion will be just as compelling. I'm not sure if uh, Mr. Ginsburg and Mr. Berger flew back to Washington or Florida on the same flight. I, I, I hope not, but uh, it was good to see that the debate continues. I'm Jim Falk, president of the World Affairs Council, and uh, t- today's program is part of our 2008 China series, and if you've not yet picked up a program, please do so. We are so pleased to be co-sponsoring this program with the uh, Crow Museum of Asian Art. It really is a pearl in our city, and we're very grateful to Trammell Crow for his support, and of course Amy Hofflin, uh, the director, who unfortunately cannot be with us today. She has a good excuse. That they're, they're having their board meeting. I said they should have had their board meeting here, but uh, that, that sales job didn't, didn't work, but we're very pleased to have with us uh, a representative of their organization uh, who will be introducing uh, Susan Shirk in, in just a few minutes. Bob Kantner with DLA Piper is on his way, but um, let's give an applause right now for DLA Piper and another one when he comes. Thank you very much, DLA Piper. Uh, last night, uh, my wife Terrell and I picked up Susan at the airport and uh, realized that there's a lot more about this woman that, uh, that goes way beyond her resume. Um, Robert, you um, um, don't know, you haven't read all this in, in the bio, but uh, when the University of Texas at Dallas was in its first initial months of uh, being established, uh, Susan was, came here about a week every month for a full academic year when at that time she was at the University of Texas at Austin and helping build the curriculum. So coming back to Dallas after just a few years is, is a homecoming in a, in a very real sense for, for Dr. Shirk. I um, want to welcome and thank the students who are here from the Colleyville Heritage High School and Plano Senior High School. Uh, their uh, visit today is supported by our International Education Initiative, and I know that many of you in this room support that. I also want to thank Ann Hines, one of our directors, who sponsored students today from the Arlington Heights High School. Students, we expect great questions from you guys. Uh, you always get the first question, so I'm looking, looking forward to that. Um, As you continue to enjoy your lunch, let me just highlight a few of the programs that are coming up at the World Affairs Council in the course of the next week or two. One is uh, one I think that is particularly important, and that will be next Thursday, May 29th, when we bring in Tim Weiner. Tim Weiner is a Pulitzer Prize winner, and his book, Legacy of Ashes, about the history of the CIA, won the 2007 National Book Award. Um, Unfortunately... I will be at BookFest next week looking for new authors to bring, so I will miss this speech. So I cheated, and I listened to his talk, one of his earlier talks on a podcast, and uh, I know that you will enjoy his, his remarks. 
They're, they're very important, they're compelling, they're controversial, and he's also going to be taking a lot of questions, so be, be prepared for that, and that's next Thursday. Then also, um, early the following week, we're going to have one of the most astute observers of the Middle East, and that is journalist, Washington Post journalist Robin Wright. Uh, she is really probably one of the top scholars and reporters on the on the Arab world. Um, Madeline Albright called her book fascinating reading for anyone who likes uh, human drama. I watched her, I believe it was on Meet the Press about a month ago, and it'll be a real pleasure to, to have her with us. Uh, please remember, as I always say, what I always say when I conclude, turn on your cell phones. Susan, don't worry. Turn on your cell phones when you leave today's event. And uh, thank you so much for being with us. And... Um, let me just and, and Robert Berlanger, who's the director of special events, will be up here soon uh, to introduce Dr. Shirk. And she does have children that are still in college. So please, there are books outside for sale. You can leave right now to go book, and she'll be around after the program to personally inscribe uh, China Fragile Superpower. Again, thank you so much, and have a wonderful Memorial Day weekend as well.
Thank you very much. It is a pleasure to be here. Uh, my name is Rob Belanger. I am the Director of Special Projects at the Crow Collection of Asian Art. And it's hard to believe that the Crow Collection has been nestled in the heart of the Arts District for over 10 years. And 2008 marks that 10-year anniversary. And as a way to celebrate that and the art of the Texas Collector, we have embarked upon an exhibition series called Texas Collects Asia, in which we've gone into collections of Asian art only from Texas collections. And presently, we have our exhibition, which is Indian Southeast Asia. But beginning on July 12th, we will have uh, an exhibition entirely dedicated to the arts of China, originating from Texas collections. And that is an exciting enterprise. We presently have an exhibition called Documenting China, and it is all about contemporary photography and social change. That is up. So we have a lot of exciting programming with the Olympics coming up. So please, come on down to the Heart of the Arts District and see us. But today we are here to hear a few words from Susan Shirk. Susan Shirk is director of the University of California Institute on Global Conflict and Cooperation. She is also a professor in the Department of Political Science and the Graduate School of International Relations and Pacific Studies at the University of California in San Diego. Prior to these positions, she served as deputy assistant uh, secretary of state responsible for US relations with China. First traveling to China in 1971, since, those, since that time, her research has taken her to a broad number of areas. And she's the author of several publications, including Competitive Comrades, Career Incentives, and Student Strategies in China, The Political Logic of Economic Reform in China, and most recently, China, Fragile Superpower, of which we'll hear a few words today. So please join me in welcoming Susan Shirk. Well, thank you very much, Bob and Jim. It's a great pleasure to be with you today. Uh, as Jim mentioned, I spent two very happy years in Austin. Well, first of all, I have to tell you, I was born in San Antonio. So I'm... And then I uh, spent two happy years in Austin and commuted uh, while I was writing my dissertation before I actually started teaching there uh, up to help found the University of Texas at Dallas and develop the undergraduate social science curriculum. And I remember I was telling Jim last night that uh, I would sit in our offices at out in Richardson, writing grant proposals about building this great urban university as the cows came up to my window. <laughs> so that was Richardson then. I, uh, I'm sure it's a very different place today. I have, unfortunately, haven't seen it in a long time. Uh, but it's uh, a great pleasure to be here with you. As Jim said, I am a China scholar who has been visiting and studying China since 1971, right after the um, uh, visiting China since 71. I actually started studying China even before that. And uh, then I had this wonderful, rare opportunity to serve in government, uh, at serving under Madeleine Albright in the Clinton administration from 1997 to 2000. Well, when I went to Washington, uh, in 1997, I was really very worried about the possibility of a war 
between the United States and China. That's because in the previous year, 1996, China and the United States had come into an eyeball-to-eyeball confrontation over the island of Taiwan, which has ruled itself independently since 1949 when the communists came to power and won the Civil War and the Guomindang fled to Taiwan. But the government in Beijing and the people on the mainland view Taiwan as part of China. In 1996, what happened is that the uh, Chinese launched massive military exercises and shot missiles outside Taiwan's ports, effectively closing two Taiwan ports, in order to demonstrate their fury that the United States had allowed then-Taiwan President Li Denghui to visit the United States, come to Cornell, and that was his alma mater, and to give a speech there, which in the eyes of the Chinese on the mainland signified that we were accepting Taiwan as a sovereign, independent country. Well, we sent, when the Chinese launched those exercises and the missile tests, we sent two aircraft carrier battle groups to the vicinity, and the Chinese backed down. But what would happen the next time? Crisis escalation has a life all its own, and many wars occur even when no one wants them to happen. So as I went to government and tried to work to prevent uh, a future military conflict with China, I kept noticing how focused China's decision makers seemed to be on their own domestic politics and how very nervous and insecure they seemed. Now, of course, this was the Clinton administration, so there was plenty of domestic politics influencing our policy toward China, too. You may recall the, uh, all the accusations about campaign contributions from Chinese and accusations that the uh, Clinton administration had allowed secrets about satellites and nuclear weapons to be transferred to China. But, you know, comparing China to the United States, for Chinese politicians, there's so much more at stake than for American politicians. They worry not just about losing the next election, but about whether or not the Communist Party can actually stay in power. And of course, for these individuals, if the Communist Party falls, they and their families would lose everything. You know, um, as I wrote this book, China, Fragile Superpower, I would tell my American friends and colleagues, I'm writing a book on Chinese to kind of open up the black box of Chinese domestic politics and describe how it affects the way China behaves in the world, and it's called China Fragile Superpower, the Americans, as a rule, would say to me, hmm, what do you mean fragile? But when I told Chinese colleagues I was writing a book called China Fragile Superpower, every single one of them said, what do you mean superpower? 
Now, what I find really interesting about that is not just that Chinese do not yet view their country as all that powerful, but also that not one of them questioned my premise that China is internally fragile. Well, this fragility came through the most vividly to me in a very traumatic experience I had when I was in government. One evening in May 1999, I was driving home from the State Department and I got a call from the op center telling me that the United States had bombed, had struck the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, Yugoslavia. Now, I, of course, thought at first this must be just a few fragments, collateral damage. I learned very quickly that no, in fact, we had mistakenly targeted this building, believing it was a Yugoslav military facility, when in fact it was the Chinese embassy. We'd struck it with a number of bombs, and this plane, U.S. plane, flying from Nebraska as part of a NATO mission in Yugoslavia, had killed three Chinese journalists in the building and uh, injured 20 others. Well, my instinct as I drove back to the State Department was we, because you know, you have to figure out <coughs> what you're going to do before you actually get in the building, because if you get there, you'll never have a moment to think. So I thought, we have to, if we have struck the Chinese embassy, no matter why or how, we have to apologize profusely from the president on down. Otherwise, the Chinese will never let us forget it, just as they have never let the Japanese forget their failure to apologize adequately for their brutal occupation of China during World War II. So we had President Clinton try to call right away. President Jiang Zemin would not accept the call. Then Secretary of State Albright went to the Chinese embassy that night to apologize. President Clinton apologized on television. He also signed the condolence book at the Chinese embassy. We tried to send an envoy right away. The Chinese said, don't come. We tried to send our ambassador to the airport to be there when the plane with the uh, remains of the victims returned to Beijing. The Chinese to show, again, how very sorry we were. The Chinese said, no, don't come. Uh, finally, Jiang Zemin took President Clinton's call. He apologized for the third time. And uh, we did pay compensation for the losses of the victims and for the building. But all our efforts to apologize profusely were in vain. Soon, protesters were swarming into the, into the streets of Beijing and other Chinese cities where we have consulates. Uh, the Communist Party had announced in the official media right after the uh, incident that this was a, quote, brazen and intentional act on the part of the United States. And they provided buses to transport the students from their campuses to the U.S. Embassy and to the consulates, and then the police stood by while the students stood rocks and bricks and Molotov cocktails although the police did not allow the students to enter the buildings. So what was going on here? 
Why did the Chinese government react in this way to this crisis? Well, first of all, the timing of this incident was really quite unfortunate. This was uh, May 12, 1999, less than three weeks before in late April. President Jiang Zemin and his colleagues had awakened one morning to find the leadership compound, Zhongnanhai, where they work and many of them live, to be surrounded by 10,000 adherents of the Falun Gong, a spiritual sect uh, that was peacefully sitting in to demand that they be officially recognized as a legitimate organization. Well, needless to say, Jiang Zemin and his colleagues, but especially Jiang Zemin himself, were completely freaked out by the fact that without any warning, no word from the security forces, this organization had been able to use uh, uh, cell phones and internet to organize this very large peaceful demonstration. And I have been uh, told by several insiders that the night of the Belgrade embassy bombing, he stayed up late writing a long memo, not on how to manage the crisis with the United States, but instead on how to, uh, to wipe out the Falun Gong organization in China. And I speculate that in his somewhat paranoid thinking, these two threats uh, merged together. Another factor related to timing is that in uh, less than a month after the Belgrade embassy uh, accidental bombing would be June 4th, 1999. Now, I'm sure many of you in this room understand the significance of that date. It was the 10th anniversary of the Tiananmen demonstrations which had these pro-democracy student demonstrations that had uh, occurred in not just Beijing's Tiananmen Square, but more than 130 cities throughout China. And that had brought the Chinese regime really to the brink of possible collapse because the leadership split on how to handle the demonstrations. And only because the uh, military came in following Deng Xiaoping's orders to forcibly put down the demonstration did the regime remain standing. So June 4th, 1999 would be the 10th anniversary of this crisis. And in China, anniversaries are traditionally the time that people dare to come out and protest. And so the... Chinese leadership was worried that the students who were planning their demonstrations for June 4th might just move the date up a few weeks uh, and respond to the Belgrade embassy bombing by going to Tiananmen or going to the leadership compound in Zhongnanhai, protesting that the leaders were so weak and feckless and ineffective in the face of foreign pressure that the Americans would feel that they could bomb the Chinese embassy 
without any worries of retaliation. So in other words, this is, they were worried that the students would blame them and not the Americans. So that explains the buses. The buses were there to make sure that the students attack the Americans and not the Chinese leadership itself. So what's the larger meaning of all this? The larger meaning is that China's leaders were willing to risk a confrontation with the much more powerful United States in order to protect themselves from domestic opposition. So based on this experience and others that were not quite as traumatic but were, had some similar features, I started to see a pattern of tremendous political insecurity on the part of China's leaders. You know, to us, looking at China from outside, its leaders look like giants because the country has been so dramatically successful at reviving its economic power, its military prowess over the last 25 years. But in their own minds, China's leaders feel more like scared children trying to stay on top of a society that has really been turned upside down by this last 25 years of dynamic market reform and opening. I mean, this is not the society of Mao's China. And China's leaders know that. And this makes them very, very worried. And everything they do, both in terms of domestic policy and foreign policy, reflects this nervous insecurity. Now, some of this is good. You know, I'm, I want to spend my time talking today about why are China's leaders so insecure. But before I do, I just want to, to state that some this kind of nervousness about social unrest and protest has some positive elements, which we see very much reflected in the, uh, their response to the earthquake today. Uh, in the sense that they are hyper-responsive. They move quickly, and they get their leaders on television, and you know they're able to mobilize more than 100,000 military, and they are on the job because they want to prevent this natural disaster from turning into a political disaster. But on the other hand, it also means that they are hyper-responsive to... Um, to nationalist criticism, uh, which we saw during the crisis of just a few weeks ago, when violent demonstrations by Tibetans in Tibet sparked a lot of online criticism on the Chinese internet. Criticism not just of the Tibetans for violently attacking Chinese shopkeepers, but criticism of the government for having too feeble a response to the protests. Immediately, the leaders feel they have to get out in front. They have to respond to this as well by attacking the Dalai Lama with cultural revolution-type rhetoric and by attacking the Western media for being biased just less than four months before the Olympics 
when these very same journalists they're attacking are going to be coming to Beijing to cover the Olympics. Now, how self-defeating is that? Um, but they feel they have to respond to the domestic pressure. So this hyper-responsiveness, because of the fear of protest, has both po positive elements, but internationally, it has a lot of dangerous elements, which, is, which are the focus of my book. So let's just talk a little bit about why China's leaders are so insecure. Um, and you have to go back to 1989 again to Tiananmen because in that year, really, it was a very close call for the Chinese Communist Party, as I mentioned. And in the very same year, the Berlin Wall fell and communist regimes in the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe also fell. So it's hardly surprising that ever since 1989, China's leaders have worried that their own days in power are numbered. They also know leaders like today's leaders, Hu Jintao, Wen Jiabao, the previous group, uh, Jiang Zemin and Zhu Rongji, they know that they lack the charisma and personal following of a Mao Zedong or a Deng Xiaoping who are the leaders of the Long March generation, the founders of the People's Republic. These, these uh, earlier leaders had real charisma, real following, whereas ch today's leaders are more kind of colorless organization men, more or less interchangeable with one another. And one of the very interesting features of uh, the recent earthquake uh, is Wen Jiabao's emergence as a media personality. We had seen this earlier because he frequently, uh, I've seen this many times on Chinese television, he uh, would go down to the countryside and show his great sympathy for some poor farmer who had suffered a disaster of some sort. This is before the earthquake. And he was quite effective. He often teared up, you know, showing his compassion for these people. So he wasn't quite the kind of bloodless technocrat that most of them are. Uh, and he had a little bit, showed a little bit of personality on television, but nothing like what we've seen in the last week or so with um, his rushing to the scene of the Sichuan earthquake. And he has, it's, I'm wondering, how this has affected the power dynamics within the leadership. Because up until now, they've all been sort of roughly equal with Hu Jintao as the president and the general secretary having a little more power than the others. But now Wen Jiabao being so popular, it's interesting to, uh, to speculate about how this might change things. But basically, the... Up until the last week or so, the lack of a personal following, I think, has contributed to the sense of insecurity that China's leaders feel. Most important, however, they recognize that 25 years of very successful market reforms and opening to the world have transformed China economically and socially. You know, they can no longer 
keep track of people, much less control them. Uh, about a, probably more than 150 million people have moved from the countryside to the cities in a historic exodus of urbanization. Most people, it used to be that most people worked in state-owned enterprises where there was a lot of political control. Now the vast majority of people work in private, non-state work units where there's very little control. Uh, people travel abroad all the time. Particularly important in creating a kind of latent political challenge to the Communist Party is the fact that people have so much more information than they ever had before. Uh, China now has over 200 million people accessing news over the internet. And uh, equally important, the, the newspapers and magazines and television stations are now commercialized. They're not just mouthpieces of the government. They have a, an incentive to try to push the limits of censorship, which still exists, in order to attract readers and audiences. And we saw this so vividly with the earthquake this past week or so, where the reflexive reaction after the earthquake was for the propaganda department to say, don't send any journalists to cover the story. And the journalists and their editors just ignored it. And they went and covered the story, and then the official media had to react by having more information in Xinhua than we have ever seen. Because during a, a natural disaster like this, People will panic if they can't get the information they need. So Xinhua was minute by minute uh, publicizing so much more information than it ever had before about any event in response to the fact that the market-oriented media were already rushing to cover the story. So despite the fact that there remains a certain amount of censorship, the amount of information that people have about what's going on in their own country, about what's going on in Taiwan or Japan or in the United States has expanded dramatically, which means Chinese leaders have to react. When people know things, they, the leaders feel that they have to react to whatever is going on in these places. I think the media story is so fascinating. This is my new project that I'm spending next year writing a book about this, about the uh, information revolution in China. Now, uh, what China's leaders also worry about is the gap between rich and poor, which has widened dramatically over the past 25 years. You know, in the United States, we worry a lot about our wealth gap, which is larger than it's been in more than a century. But China's is worse. By the measure of the Gini coefficient, which is this internationally accepted measure of inequality with zero 
between zero and one, with zero being perfect equality, China's GD coefficient is now 0.49, America's is 0.41. And the reason China's leaders feel this is potentially politically explosive, that it could spark unrest from the have-nots, is that most people believe that the rich, and they're very conspicuously consuming rich these days, and if you've been to Chinese cities lately, you know, you see all the European luxury goods uh, stores and all the fancy cars and the big houses, uh, people believe that this new wealthy class got their money, not through diligence, hard work, ingenuity, but through official corruption. And that's what makes this inequality so politically uh, dangerous. But, you know, uh, protests aren't the only thing that China's leaders worry about. They also worry about the uh, elite politics. Because if the Chinese leadership can remain unified, then they can handle the protests without any major political risk. But if the leadership splits and people see divisions in the leadership, this creates what the sociologists call a political opportunity structure. Basically, people feel they can come out on the street without fear of being punished because they may find a sympathetic uh, leader to take up their cause. So they have to watch very, very carefully to make sure that the leadership remains, uh, keeps this public face of unanimity, which is becoming increasingly difficult in China. Again, because the media would really love to run stories, as the Hong Kong media does already, about leadership divisions. And it's very hard also during a period of leadership succession, as we uh, had in China this year. Uh, 17th Party Congress, they had to pick the person who will succeed Hu Jintao when he steps down from office in 2012 because it's become the standard practice to identify the successor five years early to get him ready for a smooth transition. Um, and of course, succession, you know, China is unusual in having had one peaceful succession from Jiang Zemin to Hu Jintao. Other communist, large communist countries, people had to uh, go out of office uh, feet first, as they say, um, uh, or they knocked off their successors. You know, so it was, uh, there was no peaceful succession. So managing this without letting people see the competition, which of course exists within the Chinese leadership, just as it exists among politicians in any political system, is becoming increasingly difficult. The third thing they, third lesson they took away from Tiananmen, they, they really... From that crisis, they took away three major lessons. One, prevent, do all that you can to prevent large-scale protests, social unrest. 
Second lesson is prevent public leadership splits. The third lesson is keep the military loyal. Because if the first two don't work out, <laughs> the military is the last line of defense to keep the party in power. And uh, that's why they survived in 1989. So I think that really helps you understand why the Chinese leadership has devoted so much attention over the last 15 years to cultivating the support of the military and giving them double-digit increases in the defense budget. It's not just about Taiwan, preventing Taiwan from going independent. It's not just about expanding China's influence through its modern military. It's also about the need to keep the military loyal by giving the generals and the admirals the modern equipment that they never had before, sending them back to the barracks to learn how to use this equipment and keeping them happy and uh, so that you know if there is a domestic crisis, they will stand with you. The last source of Chinese, in the insecurity of China's leaders is intensifying nationalism. Uh, we, China's leaders have the lessons of the previous two dynasties very much in mind. In the Qing dynasty, which fell to the Republican government in 1911, and then the Republic of China, which lost the civil war to the communists in 1949. Both of those previous two dynasties, you might want to call them, fell to national movements in which the domestic discontents of particular urban and rural groups were fused together by this powerful force of nationalism. They attacked the governments for being too weak in the face of foreign pressure, foreign aggression. So the communist leadership wants to make sure that the same thing does not happen to them. So they, on the one hand, they encourage this nationalist sentiment as a source of support for the Communist Party now that nobody believes in communism. But on the other hand, they feel they have to make sure they stay out in front. They're afraid of it because it could turn against them as well as against the foreign target. And this is where the danger lies. Because if this insecure leadership feels they need to react to something that a Taiwan president or a Japanese prime minister or someone says or does, by making a threat, and then they feel they can't back down from that threat, because to do so would mean the loss of power in China. That is really extremely dangerous, particularly on Taiwan. The, uh, it is widely believed in China that if a Chinese government, if Taiwan leaders declare independence in one form or another, formal independence, and the Chinese leadership doesn't react forcibly to prevent that, 
then that government that in Beijing would fall. It, that is what is, I think actually it's probably a myth, but it doesn't matter. It has a life all of its own if the leaders and everyone else believes it. So the fragility of China's domestic situation is really a risk. I do believe that China's leaders are very sincere when they say that they want the country to rise peacefully. They do not want to provoke any conflicts with the United States or Japan or other countries that could slow down its economic growth and create domestic threats. They don't, they really do want the country to rise peacefully and they want to be a responsible power, which is the way they describe themselves. But the question I have is, is this sustainable domestically in light of the insecurity of China's leaders, all the domestic challenges they face, the increased information that people have about what's going on in the outside world. And I think that we need to keep this fragility in mind when we make our own policies toward China because we need to recognize that everything we say and do is resonating through China's domestic politics. And uh, that if we keep this in if we have this understanding in mind when we make our own policies toward China, I think that we can help China be the responsible power they claim they are instead of acting out in response to the domestic predicament they face. So thanks very much, and now I'm really looking forward to your questions. first question is from a student at Plano Senior High. Could you address how China plans to balance its economic growth with its environmental concerns? Uh, well, up until recently, it certainly hasn't. Uh, it has pursued economic growth over all other goals because it's a political goal, not just an economic goal. They feel that they have to keep the economy growing at more than 7% per year in order to create jobs, prevent massive unemployment, which would lead to widespread social unrest and threaten Communist Party rule. Well, now the results of that rapid growth are being felt by everyone in China, and China has probably the worst environmental problems in the world, water pollution, air pollution, you name it. So uh, the Beijing leaders are paying very close attention to this. Why? <coughs> Not because they're such enlightened people, but because there have been a lot of protests about it recently. And when people start protesting the poisoning of the rivers by chemical plants, um, even the building of the chemical plants because of potential poisoning, then the government starts to pay attention. Right now, they have put in place um, 
some very impressive environmental regulations at the central level. The challenge is how to get local officials who are promoted on the basis of how rapidly their economies grow to pay more attention to environmental quality when they're not elected. So uh, this issue is intertwined with the whole question of political reform as well. Uh, you mentioned a couple of issues this year that have given the leadership a great deal of concern, the Tibet issue and, and all that it caused, as well as, uh, as, well as uh, why am I forgetting what the earthquake. other one is? Tibet and? Earthquake. Earthquake. Olympics. How recent. At any rate, I guess one other thing that surely is making them nervous is the rapid increase in food prices that, mm. that they're experiencing right now because of some of the reasons you mentioned. And I wanted to add to that energy prices, although I don't know if they still control energy prices as much as they used to. So my question is, how do you think those are playing into their concern level? Uh, they are very worried about inflation in China. And again, it goes back to 1989, because the protests in more than 130 cities throughout China in 1989 were in large part stimulated by rampant inflation at the time. So they are trying to do what they can to control food prices, energy prices. Yes, they do control them. But what that means is there are shortages. So you've got long lines at the pump. Uh, and so, you know, we ha we're in the midst of a worldwide inflation, actually. Um, and that is, now that China is more open, that is definitely influencing China as well. And it presents a major political challenge to the leadership. China's position on North Korea. Um, this is one of those issues which does not attract a lot of public attention or media attention, which means that the foreign ministry can handle it pretty professionally, I would say, without worries about the domestic fallout. Uh, but their position, which is Let's work with the United States and other countries to bring about the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. But let's do it in a way that does not cause the violent collapse of North Korea. That's their interest. So their interests and our interests are not the same. They overlap, but they're not the same. Um, and that has a domestic root to it, because if the North Korean if North Korea were to experience a violent collapse, there would be massive refugees going into the northeast of China, which is its rust belt, which has already experienced substantial blue-collar unrest. So they definitely don't want that to happen. First, thank you for your presence and thank you for your comments. You talked about the openness of the market economies and information and the ability to travel abroad. How do you see the government, the fragility of the government? Could you comment regarding with the Olympics, which we're going to bring this massive visibility? Well, it's really...
really impossible to overestimate the importance of the Olympics to China's leaders. They really thought this was going to validate them internationally and also give them a huge boost domestically. Uh, and therefore, they, did, they made two big mistakes, in my opinion. First of all, they built these gorgeous buildings. I think the facilities and the arrangements in Beijing, other than the air problem, which is huge, are really going to be the best you've ever seen. It's going to be fantastic, and everybody's going to ooh and ah about how modern China is. But they did nothing on the political side. So what about China's modernity on, you know, as a society, as a political system? They did absolutely nothing, and in fact, instead tightened up over the media, through dissidents, in jail, you know, they went the other direction. So there was no good news for anyone to report. Uh, no, and expectations are so low about China's political reform. Even small things, I think, would have really attracted uh, positive stories. And, and of course, on the Tibet side, they stopped talking to the T Dalai Lama's representatives after he got the Congressional Medal of Honor to take a strong stand on principle, but meanwhile provoking protests. The second mistake they made was to be, this is hubris, I'm sorry. It was just this overambitious torch uh, route. Nobody has ever had the torch stop in so many places over such a long period. So of course that became the focal point for every group that is unhappy with China. Um, so I'd say that, but now I think, you know, uh, after the Tibet uh, crisis, which of course they were able to change the subject, and nobody's talking about Tibet now because the earthquake news wiped it off the front page, um, and the earthquake, they certainly have the Chinese people very strongly behind them. And uh, and the Europeans, they're going to be there. I mean, I don't think any major figure, political figure, is going to try to diss the, the Olympics at this point. So I think that's not, this is not how they hope to be there, but they're actually in a pretty good place to have a successful Olympics, I think. If President Ma carries through with some of the things he's talking about, what kind of reaction or do you expect he's going to find? And with that, if you could answer, uh, are there any statesmen rather than politicians that are coming up through the ranks that uh, might have an opportunity to deal with this situation? Uh, that's a very good question, very timely. The question is about the new Taiwan president, Meng Zhou, who was just inaugurated um, two days ago and gave a very forward-leading speech at his inauguration uh, offering to resume dialogue with China. I believe that China's leaders have a lot of flexibility now in opening up dialogue with Taiwan. They can declare victory for their policies 
at starting talking with Taiwan, preventing it moving further. First of all, having Mind Zhou be president rather than the previous president who is from the pro-independence party, preventing Taiwan from moving toward independence. And I don't think anybody is really going to pay that much attention to exactly how they get there, you know, what, what concessions they make. So I think they have a lot of flexibility, and I'm very, very hopeful. However, on the Taiwan issue, there are no statesmen. They're all politicians. And the Taiwan issue, unlike, say, North Korea, is dealt with in the Standing Committee of the Politburo. So it's going to be politicians who are making that decision. Now, I'm kind of hopeful. I, in recent weeks, I was in China recently, and what I'm hearing from Chinese experts, think tank people, and public officials is they're worried that China's not going to be able to respond to Mind Zhou in a rapid and positive enough way. And I say, what? You knew he was going to be elected. You should have it all ready to roll it out. And I hope they simply don't know what Hu Jintao and his colleagues have in mind. They're waiting till he was inaugurated. That's only two days ago. And I'm hoping that we'll see a resumption of dialogue and a stabilization of cross-strait relations, which is of critical importance to American national security. Speaking of politicians, could you comment on how you see the major political candidates in our country and their views towards China? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and Madeleine Albright did comment on your book, but. <laughs> right. Well, um, you know, every presidential election campaign time, all of us China experts uh, just kind of cross our fingers and close our eyes and hope that we can get through it without doing too much damage. Uh, because China is a very big target in our own domestic politics. Um, think about it, really. It's hardly a surprise that people are so worried about China and feeling a, a China threat. Because we look at China the way we looked at the Soviet Union during the Cold War as a potential military threat. We also look at China the way we looked at Japan in the 1970s or the 1980s as a real economic threat. You put those two together, it's very difficult for any political figure to really take a kind of balanced approach. And, uh, you know, so I think the candidates so far have done pretty well at avoiding uh, scapegoating China for our own domestic problems um, and uh, hyping the China threat. So uh, I don't think you'll see much difference in the actual policies regardless of who is elected. I think the Bush administration did a very good job of handling China policy uh, after first year or two of which it, um, like every administration since Nixon, first couple of years, 
there's a lot of blaming China for various things because the new administration wants to show that it's tougher and stronger than the previous one in defending American interests. And then after a couple of years, they settle down to the same sort of pragmatic approach of trying to work with China and avoid a military conflict with China that every other administration has pursued. So I think basically you'll see the same pattern. I just hope that that period of um, uh, will be shorter than in previous administrations. I think it is getting shorter. I think the Bush administration, that period was pretty short, only about maybe a year, 18 months. We have time for one or two more questions. Katie, let's go in the back of the room over here, please. This lady here has had her hand up, yeah. Okay. I'm interested in uh, your views about the demographics in China, the one-child policy. Mm. I've heard that they're going to start having a labor shortage in 2012. And what are the implications of that for their being able to sustain their growth rate? And the second question is, could you explain how power is politically distributed in China and how much of it is in the military independent of the Communist Party? Mm -hmm. The... um China's population will age, just as Japan's and South Korea's has, uh, especially with the one-child family policy. I I didn't think there would be an actual... I mean, when you say labor shortage, it's hard to know how to define that. Um, I think that the price of labor is already increasing. So... Wages are already going up. In some parts of China, all the young people have left the villages for the cities. And so we are seeing an increase in the cost of labor, and the growth rate will slow as a result. That's inevitable. Um, But, you know, I mean, when you're growing at over 11%, the growth rate can slow with and you still have a pretty robust economy. Um, on the question of the distribution of power, the military really does not play a, a political role in decision making about anything other than, uh, I'd say, Taiwan and a few other foreign policy issues. The, there are no longer any generals in the Standing Committee of the Politburo. Um, So they're really out of politics. As I said, it's important to keep them loyal. And uh, civilian control over the military, I would say, is incomplete because it's completely under the Communist Party, not under the government. The Ministry of Defense is just a sign. So... But I don't think we really have to worry about um, military calling the shots politically in China. What we do have to worry about, of course, is if there were a domestic political uh, crisis in China that threatens Communist Party rule, we should not assume that a familiar and friendly happy democracy will follow. 
it could just as well be a general on a white horse coming in to restore order. So, but right now, if things, you know, in the short term, um, power in China really resides with the Communist Party, not with the military, in contrast to North Korea, which doesn't have much of a party, but has a very strong military. Susan, thank you very much. I have to tell you a, a secret that several months ago I was in Barnes & Noble with my wife on a Sunday afternoon and walked by the book, the shelf that showed all the new books, mm -hmm. and I picked up your book and started looking at it, and then I emailed Jess and said, we have to build our China series oh. around you being here. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for living up to all of our expectations. Okay. my pleasure. Thank you. Um, Bob Katner, come on up. Even though our chief sponsor and our champion at DLA Piper arrived a little bit late, I want you to have a, the copy of this book. Thank you Thanks very much. Thanks so much for supporting us. <laughs> Susan, thank you. Okay. And I hope everyone else will soon have a copy of China Superpower. Please go outside and thank you again, Susan, for well, being here. Thanks. Thank you. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dallasfortworth.com dfwworld.org